Let's spend a few moments in prayer before we get started with the message today. Our Heavenly Father, through the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we invoke the Holy Spirit in this sanctuary. We pray that the Spirit would blanket this sanctuary in such a way that the Holy Spirit would intercede on behalf of the Word of God for the people of God. Lord, we pray that each individual that is here this morning would receive this message in precisely the way that the Holy Spirit would have for them to receive it. We pray that your word and only your word would have power this morning for your glory, your honor, and your praise. Be with us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, two weeks ago, we started a journey. It's been a very purposeful journey. That's not going to go up, but that's okay. It's one of the advantages of being a little bit less tall. Um, we started a journey two weeks ago. You might remember Mike Webb kind of kicked us off. It's been a purposeful journey to look at the mission and the vision. Now, let me just stop for a moment and make sure that on this last Sunday of unveiling this mission and vision, we have a good understanding of what we're really looking at. Mike did a wonderful job of reminding us of the first tenet of our mission. Mission is purpose. Keep that in your mind. What is our purpose? And our purpose is to love God, first and foremost. To love God. And then if you look at the vision, think of vision this way. When you think of mission, it's purpose. When you think of vision, it's what does it look like to live out that purpose? Does that make sense? Vision. What does it look like to live out that purpose? Well, Mike reminded us that it's about a whole being love. Remember that? A whole being love. Prayer and obedience and worship. And he based that particular tenet of our mission on Mark 12:30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all of your strength. We then moved to the next week, and Chris and Brant shared the second tenet of our mission which is to serve others. And in serving others and asking yourself, what does that look like? They reminded us that serving others is not a spectator sport, that we need to get out on the field. We need to get active. And we need to do so with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You see the common element in both of those when we live out vision is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that we surrender to, to have its way with us as we love God and as we serve others. The backdrop for that particular part of the mission and that vision was from 1 Peter 4.10. Now today what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of finally give you the last tenet of our mission. And I'm going to hopefully give you a glimpse a very personal glimpse of what it looks like to live out that vision. Not only personally, but as we come together as a body of believers collectively as well. 
And the last part of our mission statement is sharing Jesus. So do you see anything in all of that? Loving God. You remember the rich young ruler, don't you? He said, what's the most important thing? And several times it's recited that loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and loving your neighbor, serving others, are paramount. Do you see the intentionality behind those two tenets of our mission statement? You know, it's amazing. We prayed over this for months and months, countless meetings together, wonderful times together. It's amazing what God does in all of that because he speaks into it in a powerful way, but when you walk away from it, you realize it's no different than where you started and what Scripture reveals so evidently. And then you're affirmed in the process because you know that is the power of the Word of God. It is longstanding. It meets us wherever we are, whenever we are, however we are, period. So I'm going to share with you today the last tenet, sharing Jesus. We're going to use Matthew 28, 18 through uh, 20, that very common, the Great Commission, as a backdrop for disciples making disciples. Now I'm going to say something to you that I think is vitally important. And that is, I believe with all of my heart, this is the core mission of the church. That we are to be disciples that make disciples that make disciples that make disciples that plant churches that make disciples. You see how this works? Generations, generations. We just sang about it. This is long standing. You know, and I also think there's some real importance to it because the very last thing Jesus said to his disciples is that he commissioned them to go out and make, make disciples. There must be something of importance to this. So, you might be asking yourself the question right about now, me, a disciple? I don't have a theology degree. I'm a bit of an introvert. I really don't care about speaking in crowds. In fact, I'm not even sure I care about speaking at all when there's more than two or three people. It's not my gift. I would say to you, not so fast. Let me see if I can spend a few minutes. Gary would say 27 and a half minutes now. Is that right, Gary? Well, he gave me a lecture. You should have heard it in there. Spirit was moving in that room before. 30 minutes is what he told me, 30 minutes. So when I hit 30, if somebody would help me, it would be great. Um, but let me spend the next few minutes just kind of ask you to consider another perspective. I want to see if I can change your lens a bit, if I can kind of change out your lens and your perspective about what it means to be a disciple. I believe that this is the greatest and ultimate responsibility we have as believers in Christ. So let's start with the qualifications of a disciple. You know, as we stated in the first tenet of the mission, believing in God is a prerequisite for loving God. But have you ever considered about God believing in us? Have you ever considered God believing in us? So we can say we believe in God, we love God, but what about God loving us? Believing that we can be people of forgiveness, of hope, of compassion, of patience, of kindness, through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. 
The second element of the mission statement, serving others by the power of the Holy Spirit's guidance within us, surrendering to that spirit movement within us. Let's go to scripture and see just how Jesus believed in us. In John 15, 16, he said, you did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. You are empowered not by your own giftedness, not by your own eloquence of speech, not by your own innate abilities, but because of the Father's gift of the Holy Spirit within you. And what about this beautiful passage from Paul in Romans 8? Very familiar. I'm going to read it all because I think it has such power. And we know that in all, God, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called. Did you hear that? Been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? How empowering. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Listen to this. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. Yeah, that's an amen there for sure. That's an amen there for sure. For I'm convinced neither death nor life neither angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. There we go. That's an amen. You can clap. That'd be good. Keep me going. When you have to ask for it, it's just not the same. I don't know what happens, but I'll take it. All right. So we're empowered. Did you hear that? Scripture speaks to it. I didn't make this up. We've read this so many times, I ask you to go back and read it again and again and again and take it in. And it won't matter what your gift is. It won't matter what your talents and abilities are. You will feel empowered in the Holy Spirit to live it out. Surrender to the Spirit and live it out every day. Well, let's take a look a little bit closer at the time of Jesus. Let's go back into his culture. And let's see how we're even further qualified, I would suggest to you, to be disciples of Christ. Followers, disciples of Christ. One of the most common names for Jesus in his time was rabbi. Rabbi, teacher. 
In fact, it's mentioned 12 times. I want to take you through a quick journey of where it's uh, mentioned, just to give you an idea, the variety of people that considered him rabbi, teacher. The first one's from Mark 9, 5. Jordan, if you want to throw that up, thank you. And this is Peter, and Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. You remember this? The Mount of Transfiguration, right? Peter also said later, remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. You remember he walks through, he curses the fig tree. They see evidence that it did indeed wither. And he says, Rabbi, great teacher, look what happened. Look at the power you have. Let's go to John 1.38. These are two disciples of John, the baptizer, the one that came to pave the way for Jesus, the one that must decrease so that he could increase. And these two disciples of John says, when Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? A little bit further, you remember Nathaniel? He tells Nathaniel, I saw you, and it all comes true. And Nathaniel says what? Rabbi, you are the son of God. He proclaims it. He says, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Then Nicodemus, a rabbi in his own right. Nicodemus comes to him and says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these things that you do apart from the presence of God. Not only did they know he was a rabbi, but they knew he was a rabbi empowered by the spirit of God. There's acknowledgement there of this teacher, this incredible teacher. And then by the crowds that followed him, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And finally, as Judas is ready to betray Jesus, he came up to him and he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. He, he addressed Jesus as rabbi, teacher. Have you ever thought about Jesus as your rabbi, as your teacher? Let me give you a little history about a rabbi in the context of what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is someone who wants to be just like the rabbi, the teacher. See, rabbis were interesting they knew the law, they knew scripture, they knew the law, and then they had their own interpretation of it, and they deviated just a bit from each other. Their interpretation of the teaching that they had learned was called a yoke. Anybody recognize that? Jesus has a yoke as well. In fact, he says his yoke is what? Easy. In contrast to these rabbis who had their own interpretations, let me give you an example. Every rabbi would subscribe to the idea that you don't work on the Sabbath. But where they might differ is their interpretation of what work is. One rabbi might say, well, work is if you, if you walk more than two miles on the Sabbath. Another rabbi might say, well, it's really if you walk three miles on the Sabbath. You get the idea? these subtle differences that were vitally important to be able to follow that rabbi's interpretation. I think that's interesting. Jesus also instructed his disciples to do something. 
And it's right embedded in our mission statement. It's embedded right in the vision part of the mission statement. It's embedded in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where he says, go out and make disciples. Go out and make disciples. He didn't have all these different interpretations. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. He said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he said, most importantly, as I leave you, go out and make disciples. Tell others about this as well. Make followers. Now, could you consider Jesus your rabbi? Is that a teaching you can subscribe to as a disciple of Christ? As a follower, as a believer? Can you buy into this interpretation that Jesus shares with each one of us as a responsibility, as followers of his? Let's go a little bit further. Sounds like you might be interested, but still not sure. Well, let's look at the disciple selection process. Because after all, we're so consumed, honestly, with where I started at the beginning, I find myself often wondering, do I have the qualifications, the credentials, you know, the stuff to really do this well? And what I've done is I've placed myself in the place of the Spirit, just where we started. If I surrender myself, deny myself, and allow the Spirit to work within me, I have absolutely no problem with this. In fact, that yoke is a very easy yoke, easy teaching to follow. So let's talk about this Jesus, Jesus' selection process. Do you realize that Jesus probably chose these disciples of his? And they probably were the B players a bit. The B players. Let me tell you why I think that might be the case. In Jesus' time and even preceding Jesus in, in a Jewish tradition, there was a training that took place with Jewish children. And the first one, and Jordan, if you can get me that slide, the first one was called Beit Sefer. Now, Beit Sefer occurred between the ages of 5 and 12. And by the time that you got to that age, you had to memorize Torah. How many books of the Bible is Torah? Anybody remember that? Five. That's right. Five. The first five books of the Bible. Word for word. Word for word. Memorize and the ability to recite Torah by the age of 12. If you could do that, you could move to the next stage in this Jewish education system, this process, if you will. You could move to the next stage, which is called Beit Midrash. And Beit Midrash was interesting because in those next two or three years, you had to memorize the entire Old Testament. I should have brought one up. The entire Old Testament, word for word. Word for word. And the idea was, if you memorized it, you could live it out to the word as law. And that was prerequisite for being considered by a rabbi to be a follower. You get the idea? Kind of like baseball. You start out in the double A and triple A and you make your way up hopefully to the major league. Same thing here. Now, it was an absolute honor for a Jewish child to be able to do this past these two phases and be what? Embraced by a rabbi. 
embraced by a rabbi, a rabbi whose interpretations that disciple could subscribe to as well, that follower could subscribe to as well. Well, did you ever notice something about the followers of Jesus? By the way, it was a disgrace for a Jewish child not to be able to make it through those two first phases and be considered by a rabbi, to follow that rabbi for their entire life. Did you ever notice Jesus' disciples? Well, they resemble those folks that didn't make it through those two first phases. Because this is what happened. If you didn't make it through those first two phases, you typically went into the family business, a trade. Maybe like fishing. Does that ring a bell? And Jesus finds these fishermen, and he says, follow me. I always wondered, how did these disciples so eager to follow him just based on this idea of follow me? But you think about this culture, and you think about their mindset, and they're in a place where they aren't following a rabbi yet. And a rabbi comes along and says, follow me. And they say, okay, very willingly. This would be an honor. This would be what every Jewish child and Jewish family would desire for their children is to be able to follow in the dust, they say, of the rabbi. You know what it means to be in the dust of the rabbi? It means you're so intimately aware of and closely following the rabbi that that dust from the road that you're following with him is all over you. That beautiful imagery when it comes to Jesus and our opportunity to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow him so closely that we're covered in the dust of our rabbi, that the world is curious to know, why is it that you have hope? Why are you people of patience and kindness and joy and love, self-control? And they can see it not just in our words, but just like these disciples in their actions as they follow the rabbi. Well, I think this is an interesting scripture. Um, Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians. And I think about the fact that I'm not worthy. You know, I do a lot of, unfortunately, I do a lot of, and I'm just being honest with you, a lot of I. Did you hear that in, uh, in my language? I'm not worthy. I don't really have that gift. I don't really... I I, kind of buy into that. And the problem with that is it's not about me. That's the problem with that statement. It's not about me. It's not about me. I have to get out of that. I I have to be renewed by taking that thought captive and be transformed in the likeness of Jesus because it's not about me, but my surrender to him. See how that works? That's a conscious effort on my part. Now, honestly, I'd rather work out of my own gifting and abilities, quite frankly. It's easier And as a person that, by the way, I am fishing for something after this, a person that really appreciates affirmation. Okay, you got it. That's good. I'm expecting a very large crowd up here. Donna knows it's words of affirmation. So uh, 35 years ago, I'm not supposed to say that one. That's right. 35 years ago, we celebrate our anniversary today. Donna and I have been married for 35 years. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that wasn't in the notes. And Donna said, please don't make it about you. So I just did it. I'm sorry, Lord. Oh, 
But Paul says it to the church at Corinth. He really gives me a lot of relief with this. I always look at this verse. It's such a humbling verse. And it reminds me how inadequate I am. And in that inadequacy and in that vulnerability, when I can really admit that I'm inadequate, when I can tell you as a group of people that I am inadequate, when I acknowledge that I don't have what it takes, at that moment, this verse speaks to me, and I hope it will to you as well. Just like the B players that Jesus picked and said, follow me, take up your cross, follow me, deny yourself, follow me. Paul says to the church at Corinth, we don't need special credentials from the message because I love some of this language. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you. That was fun, (laughs) sorry. Um, Not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose these nobodies to the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn. I just did that, I'm so sorry. Before God, everything that we have, right thinking, right living, a clean slate, and a fresh start comes from God by the way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have the saying, if you're gonna blow a horn, blow a trumpet to God. Wow. Do you know how many times I have to read this to myself? I don't like the best and the brightest thing because I think too highly of myself. But I'm thankful by the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit working within me, I have power that I couldn't possibly manufacture on my own. But I have to surrender. Convinced? Well, let me just read you a couple of excerpts here. You know, these B players went on to change the course of history for the world. You realize that, right? Like he said, follow me. These weren't like the stars. They followed him and the course of history of this world was changed forever. Do you see that? You have that same power. Do you believe that? If you believe it individually, personally, when we come together collectively, it just multiplies. It's awesome. You have influence. And wherever you have that influence, use it for the glory of God. Oz Hillman wrote in this Christian post a couple of things I want to share with you. He said, culture is defined by a relatively small number of change agents. It takes less than three, listen to this, three to five percent of those operating at the top of culture to shift the values. If you don't believe that, look at Hollywood and media. Just look at it. There's good evidence right there. When you have that position, and if you have that position, use it for influence to the glory of God as a follower of Jesus. Between 150, this is astounding, between 150 and 3,000, those are small numbers, relatively speaking. In fact, they're a tiny fraction of the roughly 23 billion people that have lived between 600 BC and AD 1900. But those 150 and between 150 and 3,000 people helped shape the contours of the world as we know it today. You have influence. It doesn't matter if the majority of culture is made up of Christians 
What matters is to use the influence that you have wherever you are. And so you might be saying, well, I don't have that culture, that, that, that uh, mountaintop cultural influence like you're talking about, Bill. And I say, that's why you have Jesus. Because you know what Jesus did? I get what Oz Hillman's saying, but Jesus said, let me tell you something. I'm going to operate from a servant posture, and I'm going to work bottom up. My influence is going to work from the bottom up. So if we as believers and followers of Jesus Christ that have influence in the top of the mountains that shape culture, or whether we have it from the posture of a servant, we have influence. Believe that. Act like you believe that. Make the world curious. Make the world curious. The greatest compliment you can ever get is, what makes you so happy? How can you have such joy? Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about my rabbi. Let me tell you about my teacher. Let me tell you about my teacher. Well, let's go into a little bit of a summary of what it means to be a disciple then and see where you are now. Ask yourself this question about yourself. It's rhetorical. It's meant to kind of sink a little bit. Maybe you can spend some time even meditating on it throughout the course of the week. But disciples simply said, this is kind of a simple interpretation, they trust Jesus so much that they pledge their allegiance, and that's called faith, in him. Is that you? Let's go a little bit further. They imitate. They act it out. They don't just talk about it. They imitate Jesus' life so completely as both teacher and Lord. Teacher and Lord. Sovereign. They look to Jesus' teachings, this rabbi's teachings, as the basis for everything they do. How they make decisions, how they process their day-to-day lives. This is what they do. This is what I was talking about, taking that thought captive. Considering what is it that Jesus would do through me. They love, they love Jesus so much that it just outflows into every relationship they encounter. Is that you? You know, the greatest blessing I believe that we have is letting our blessings overflow into others as blessing. And let them receive just a hint, the essence of God and everything he's doing in our lives. And I believe that can change people. I've seen it. You have too. Believe that. Live like you believe that. And they form their life around Jesus. Everything they do, everything they do has a frame of reference that has a rabbi right in the center. Sounds challenging, doesn't it? Maybe, but our rabbi Jesus, as I said before, said, my burden is light, my yoke is easy, my teaching is easy. Why? Not because it is, but because he is. Did you hear that? Oh, it's hard. It's hard to be different in this world. I get that. It's much easier to subscribe to the ways of the world. It's much easier to take control. Hey, I got control. Now Donna's starting to nod. I have control issues. I'd much rather have that wheel. So with Life Group last night, we were talking about that, that need for control. But it's when I give up that control. It's that countercultural posture 
and say, Jesus, it's all about you. It's all about you. And your yoke is easy because you're going to do a work in me. I don't have to do it. My only work is to respond to you, to surrender to you, to be obedient to you, to give you the glory, the honor, and the praise that you desire and that you deserve. Lord, I pray that you've received that this morning. Now, if that were not enough to convict you, I want to share a story with you. Gary, how did I do? Where's Gary? If Gary's not in here, I'm going still. Oh, okay. <laughs> I want to share with you a story. I'm going to step out of the way. And thanks, Millers, for being here. I, I got a gift. Um, I got to tell you, this is going to choke me up. I got a gift two weeks ago. I worked with a uh, colleague of mine about 10, 11 years ago. We became very good friends. He's an African-American. He is a, he's a preacher. And we, uh, we became very good friends. I do believe it's because of kindred spirit. It's interesting. Tell your story. You know what happens. Community happens. That's what we're designed for is community. Our stories connect us in really meaningful ways. And we find out really interesting things about each other and things that we resonate with each other. And then we have community. And it's a wonderful thing. We were never meant to be alone. We were meant to be in community. God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit. We made really good friends. At the beginning of COVID, we started to work on an analytics project. <laughs> now here I go into work mode, sorry. A project together. And uh, I said, isn't it good to be working together again? I said, I'll tell you though what I need more than your help on this. Obviously we need each other to kind of go through this experience of COVID that our company was going through and, and the world was going through, of course. I said, but what I need is I need you. I need you right now. Uh, and he said, I need you as well. And so we found each other again. I'm going to fast forward. He said, do you remember, I'm not going to use the name, John. Remember John? Yeah, I remember John. He said, John has cancer. He's brain cancer. I said, wow. Whew. John's kind of young. He said he is, and remember, he's from another country. I'm not going to mention the country. I, he asked me not to share a lot of details, and I'm going to respect that. They're very private people. And he only has his mother here. They, they actually came over together from this foreign country, very oppressive country. And they only have each other. He said, yep, still the same situation. I said, oh, it's got to be horrible for John. Terrible diagnosis, him and his mom, and they are atheists. They don't, they don't have Jesus. They, they don't believe. It's got to be a horrible place to be. I said, I'll pray for you. I won't mention his name. As you talk to John, let him know I'm praying as well. I said, I'll do that. COVID happened about two weeks ago. I got a call. He, my friend, mentioned I've been visiting John. I go up for three and four weeks at a time. Listen to this. It just, it's unbelievable to me. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This is what it looks like. I go and spend three and four weeks in his hospital room. He has no hope, but I tell him about Jesus. And more importantly, I just sit and I listen. And I pray, and he lets me pray. 
He doesn't really believe. Mom gets in the room and gets really mad at me and gets me out of there. She says the reason he's dying is because you're here. He said, it's really hard to hear. It's really difficult. I said, I'll pray for you, man. Have courage and confidence. You just keep going. You just listen. Just be there. And he said, about a week and a half ago, Bill, thanks, thanks for discipling with me. I got a call from John, and he wants to accept the Lord. His mom is very angry with me, but he is so excited. And he accepted the Lord. I said, hey, I didn't do anything. He said, you prayed. You modeled what it looked like to be faithful and committed to what you believe has the power, and that is Jesus. He said, all I did was sit in the hospital room. I'm like, really? That's all you did? I remember a guy like St. Francis of Assisi, if anybody remembers, go out and spread the news the good news of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. And this is my commission to you. You don't have to do it with words. You don't have to do it with eloquence. You don't have to do it that way. He said, go out and spread the good news. If necessary, use words. Be Jesus. That's what it means to share Jesus, is being available. Is pointing others to a higher power. In all likelihood, John will pass soon. But we can rest assured in the fact that he has Jesus. And we'll get to spend some time with John one day. That's a really good thing to look forward to. A really good thing to look forward to. May God bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you.